All right, friends, uh, I invite you to fasten your seatbelts for today's message. It is going to be in four parts and include four different passages, and it will be a little ping, be a little ping-ponging between Pastor Jeff and I. You may be thinking, oh no, am I going to have to endure four sermons as a result of this? Um, they are going to be short and very direct. I would, I would invite you to think of this as a four-part meal from Portillo's. Perhaps a hamburger or Italian beef, an order of fries, a delicious shake, and dessert. What could be better than that? All right, the key word for today is belonging. And at the turn of a new year, I think it is a great, significant question to ask, where do I belong these days? And maybe even more significantly to ask, to whom do I belong these days? Here is one of the amazing things about God. Not only did he create us to be free people, God being infinitely greater to us is the ultimate free being. And if God uses his freedom to say things, they literally come to be. And if God says over a group or over a person, you belong to me, who is going to contradict that? Who is going to reverse that? Who is going to nullify that if God says, you belong to me? Wouldn't it be amazing to walk around through life with a confidence, knowing that God has said over your little life, you belong to me? Quick show of hands. Anybody in the room want to belong to God? Like, I mean, you're here on Sunday morning. Like, why would you be here? through ice and snow and viruses, if you, did, if, if you did not already have this desire in your heart. Here is how God feels about the matter from Isaiah chapter 43. Listen to God's voice. But now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, God's people, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Do not be afraid, my people, for I am with you. Interestingly, in this passage, um, it describes the trials that we inevitably go through in terms of waters and rivers and fire. Um, I would recognize that in the history of Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, we have been through both literal and figurative waters and fires and more. Um, there was a huge flood in Elmhurst in 1987. This building was flooded in 2009 and 2011. Is that right, Doug Bardoff? <laughs> Uh, the steeple of our old church building, not that the church is a building, um, was struck by lightning in 1991. Bert, yes, 1991. It burned the roof and wrecked the church, and our church was kind of a church on the move for about a year after that. We have literally been through waters. We have literally been through fires now we're passing through a global pandemic right outside the worship center. If you take a quick right, um, can we go back one slide? There is this little stand, including a metal cross, which is the cross that was struck by lightning. And on top of that little stand, there is a Bible 
opened, and here are the pertinent words that echo the passage in Isaiah that we just read together. In this Bible, it says through this, we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. I would add, you brought us through water, you brought us through fire, you're bringing us through COVID, you are bringing us to a place of abundance. This is only possible because we belong to God. Here's the promise of God. When you're in, when you belong to God, God brings you through. That's what gives me confidence, hope to go through whatever water, flood, fire, challenge, nonsense I either concoct or that comes upon me from the outside. If I belong to God, God will bring me through. If we belong to God, if the church and if this particular congregation belongs to God, God will bring us through. That is his promise. Does God promise that it will be easy? Oh, maybe not. I'm going to give it to Pastor Jeff. Yeah, my, my news is not quite as good. Um, I remember when uh, my son Benjamin was in fifth grade, and uh, we found out November teacher conferences, his fifth grade teacher tells us that Ben has been telling his teacher for like three months he can't do his homework because we're so busy at home every night, we're always going somewhere, so we always have him out going places and he can never sit down and do his homework. So I came home and said, Ben, we got to go see your teacher. <laughs> and uh, Ben had forgotten that to be part of the Klein family, if you wanted to be in, it didn't include lying. It didn't include not taking responsibility for your stuff. It didn't include, you know, kind of living your own way, getting whatever you want, and then doing it your own way. No, there were a certain set of parameters you had to live within, right, to be part of the Klein family. So all the way down to school that day, as we walked to school the three blocks, Ben gave me all the rationalizations he gave me all the minimizing, gave me all the denials about what he had done and why he had done it and how he wasn't going to flunk out of fifth grade. I mean, come on. And we got there, of course, we talked to his teacher. Now, we could have ignored the whole thing. We could have just said, hey, you know, we'll just let Ben lie and not take responsibility, be fine. But if you're going to be in, right, if your parents really care about you, they're going to hold your feet to the fire. So we had to hold Ben's feet to the fire. We couldn't let him keep acting like this. Now, the reason I tell you this story is I think a lot of people in the world we treat our sin, our missteps, our slip-ups in the same way Ben did. We minimize it. We rationalize it. We deny it. We kind of pretend like it didn't really happen. It's no big deal. Right? We've kind of learned this. This passage in Ezekiel chapter 5 is kind of a wake-up call on this. Uh, when, we, when we get to the Ezekiel chapter 5, Babylon has already visited Israel once and carried off its best and brightest. And Ezekiel is going to be sent to warn them that, he, that Babylon's coming back to destroy the city. We find a people of Israel who have minimized their sin, who have pretended like there's no big deal, but the things they're doing, who have ignored God's commandments and, and rules, who have forgotten what it means to be in a covenant relationship with their God. That there's parameters, there's a way you're supposed to live to keep you on the path that God has you on. So Ezekiel is interesting. As a prophet, he's almost like a a theater uh, actor. Like a, he's like a, a street actor who goes out in the streets to put on display in some form the message from God. So in this particular passage, Ezekiel 5, he's sent out and he's told to take a sword, shave his beard, shave his head, 
and keep all the hair. Then he's supposed to take the hair on a scale and weigh it into three equal parts. One part he's supposed to put on a map over the city of Jerusalem, light it on fire and burn it. The next part he's supposed to take his sword and chop it into little pieces. And the third part he's supposed to throw to the wind and let it blow all over the wind. What does this mean? Well, it's a sad message. One third of the people of Jerusalem will die from fire in the city. One third of the people of Jerusalem will die from the sword outside the city. And one third of the people of Israel will be carried into exile into Babylon, in slavery. Look what God says in Ezekiel 5, verses 4 and 5. This is an illustration of what will happen to Jerusalem. I placed her at the center of the nations, but she has rebelled against my regulations and decrees, and has been even more wicked than the surrounding nations. She has refused to obey the regulations and decrees I gave her to follow. So Israel is placed at the center of the nations to be a light to the nations. But instead... Her behavior has made the nations even darker. She's forgotten what it means to be in this covenant relationship with God. Now there's one little bit of hope in the passage. Ezekiel's told to take a small bit of the hair that he cuts off and put it in the fold of his garment and protect it there. Because even though God's going to judge his people and discipline them, he's not going to wipe them out. He's going to continue in this relationship with them which is a bit of hope. When it comes to God's dealing with us, if God didn't really care, he would just turn us loose. But when you said yes to follow Jesus, when you said yes to be part of a community like this, you said yes to God's discipline, God's judgment, God keeping you on the pathway of a relationship with him. So just like Pastor Greg, I have a slide. When you're in, God disciplines you. It's not the way we like to think of God, but it's true. You know, it's interesting, I think in our culture today, we've lost a fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're sitting around shaking your boots. It means that you have a reverence for God and his ways. I think most of us, again, we just sort of write our little missteps up as like no big deal. But maybe we need to get back to this idea that God is woe. And we need to have a little more fear and understand that he wants to shape us and transform us into people that reflect his glory and shine a light to the nations. Back to you, Pastor Ray. I'm glad I, you got that passage, man. So this is true. Um, to live in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, to live in the fear of the Lord is equated in the Bible with living a holy or set apart or countercultural or against the grain kind of life, um, if we're going to live that way, where's the energy going to come from? Where's the, the vision going to come from? Uh, if I have to summon that up for myself, if I have to just like buckle down and try hard uh, to be like a good spiritual person, like I'm not going to get very far. For us to do that, we need a leader. We need a vision that's higher than our own. If God wants us to live in the fear of the Lord and to be holy and to be set apart, the way he's going to accomplish that, the way it's going to be accomplished in our lives, is by us following Jesus and keeping our feet on his path. God desires to set us 
apart with Jesus. Here's what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Um, This is the first scene that we see of him in the Gospels when he's an adult. When all the people were being baptized, this was by John the Baptist in the Jordan River in Israel, Jesus was baptized too. This was a way of being set apart, saying that I want to live all in for God. As Jesus was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, this is an amazing scene, right? You have Jesus, the Son of God. You have the Holy Spirit in bodily form. It's almost an appearance of the entire Holy Trinity. We're only missing God the Father at this point. By the way, the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible explicitly, but implicitly. The fact that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit is all over the whole story of the Bible. But here's what happens next. And then there was a voice that came from heaven. And we you read these words with me, these two lines and quotations. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, whose voice do you think that was? <laughs> it was God, our Father's voice. So again, there's Jesus of Nazareth, a human being. There's the Holy Spirit present in validating Jesus and what he's about to start, his sacrificial ministry, and the voice of God the Father is literally speaking like thunder out of heaven. Now, Jesus himself was uh, about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph. God the Father gives his son this incredible validation and confidence boost that it is, in fact, his mission to be the Messiah, the bridge builder, the rescuer. Did Jesus need this as a 30-year-old Jewish man who was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth? Did Jesus need his confidence boosted? Did Jesus need affirmation? I think on one level, totally. He was a human being, like we're human beings, Jesus had a need for food and shelter and friendship and love and affirmation like all of us. And God, the Father in this moment, is being an incredibly faithful provider of what matters most. Like we all need someone to believe in us. And God, in an amazing way, provides that for Jesus just as he is launching into his adult ministry. Um, I remember being a four-year-old kid. This is in ancient times, but um, kids, if you have older siblings, um, I, have a, I have several siblings who are quite a bit older. When I was four, my oldest sister went to nursing school at the University of Michigan. Um, as the oldest in my family, she was kind of like the first one to like leave town and go off on her own. And I remember it being a little bit of a sad day because it was the first time that like our family was kind of like splitting off. Um, At the same time, I have a vivid, vivid memory of how proud my parents were of my sister, not just for her hard work wanting to become a nurse, but also proud that she was brave enough to leave the safety of home and do what she was supposed to do. And as a pretty small kid at that point, um, I think what, what I was left with was this thought, not that just... My parents are proud of my sister Julie being the oldest, but 
it dawned on me that my parents were proud of all of us as kids. Does that make sense? Like, I, I, I felt like a little bit of the sunshine that was shining on her, that some of the light, like, spread on me, even though I was going to preschool and didn't have much, you know, to, to offer uh, at that point in my life. I have lived most of my life with what I would call the blessing or the good fortune that I have not been able to shake the blessing of my parents. Like, that is a fortunate thing, as now nearly a 50-year-old, to be able to say, like, I have never escaped the blessing of my parents. They were not perfect people. They had their own problems, but they loved, loved, loved their kids and their grandkids, and I carry that with me to this day. Um, both of my parents have passed. Um, they have been dead for a while. Um, for, for a bit after they had gone, I would occasionally, in my imagination, still hear my parents' voices. Uh, like giving me a word of affirmation or a little bit of confidence. But the older I have gotten, it's not that I've forgotten my parents, but that need has slowly evaporated in my life and it has been replaced by the affirmation that by faith I receive from God himself. Amen. As good as my parents were, the affirmation of God by faith is something infinitely more durable and eternal and, and stronger. Now, I didn't get my parents' blessing because I deserved it or because I was a particularly great kid. I was up to all sorts of nonsense. I don't get God's blessing because I'm a particularly good adult or deserve it. I'm still up to all kinds of nonsense. Amen? All right. Here's the thing. I receive God's blessing because Jesus received God's blessing, and I'm with Jesus. Like, that's where it's at. Not through hard work, not through achievement, not through being a professional Christian, not through running my mouth on Sunday morning, not through trying to do things that are kind or being a good neighbor. I am confident of the blessing of the Lord through faith because I am with Jesus when you're in, when you belong to God, you're with Jesus. That's as simply as I can put it. When you're in, you are with Jesus, and vice versa. Now, is this just for kids with nice parents? Is this just for people who grow up and work for churches? Could this possibly be for a wider audience? Wouldn't that be amazing? Pastor Jeff, bring us home. You've almost, you've almost made it. you got one more so segment here. You ready? All right. Book of Acts. Book of Acts uh, tells us about the beginnings of the earliest church. Right? Um, you know that on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, and there are tongues of fire, and there's rushing wind, and the disciples are given the ability to speak in the languages of all the people that are gathered at the temple. They all hear them in their own languages, which is a Holy Spirit miraculous kind of happening. Peter gives his sermon... 3,000 people are converted on that first day and are baptized, not only in water, but in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left the earth 10 days before that, he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples probably had in their own minds what this meant, being his witnesses, and who this was reserved for. 
the Jewish people that were already on the inside, the people that already understood who God was and who kind of got this, those were the ones who would be the witness, they would be witnesses to. Those were the good Jews with the right theology and the right lineage and all that. Um, in fact, the disciples might have stayed in Jerusalem had it not been for the persecution that broke out when the Apostle Paul started to stone the church and drag people off. They were comfortable in Jerusalem. It was nice there. They were used to it there. That's where they, were, that's where they hung out. That's where the home was. But then the persecution breaks out and they're scattered all different places. I wonder why they, some of them ended up in Samaria. I think it's probably because they figured nobody would look for them there. Seriously. They go to Samaria because they think, well, no good Jew will think we're ever in Samaria, so we'll go hang out there. But Acts tells us wherever they went, they preached the gospel, and people, the Samaritans, came to believe in Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know who the Samaritans are. They're considered by the Jews to be half-breeds because they come from a marriage between Israelites and Assyrians. It happens way back in the Old Testament. So the Israelites that got carried off into Assyria intermarried with Assyrians, and they created this half-breed group of people that the Jews couldn't stand. Because it was a sellout of Deuteronomy chapter 7, which was to only marry your own kind. So they hated the Samaritans. Every good Jew would always go around Samaria. Imagine, like, it's like if you're going to Colorado and you can't stand the people from Iowa, you drive around Iowa. That's what they did, right? They would drive around Samaria. They would go around Samaria, even though it was many more miles to get around it because they didn't want to go through it because they might run into a Samaritan. They couldn't stand them. So look what happens in Acts 8. Philip is preaching. They get converted. And then uh, the news reaches Jerusalem about what's going on in Samaria. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, probably to investigate this, to say what's going on there. And look what happens next. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It didn't matter they were Samaritans. Didn't matter they were half-breeds. Didn't matter what they had done. Didn't matter what the Jews thought about them. Because God thought differently. Because when you're in, it doesn't matter where you're from or what you've done. Now it's interesting because we as a church would all say, we believe this. It's totally true. Really? Do we really act like it's true? Like when people come through the door that are a little different, do we welcome them with open arms? Like Jesus did? Are we ready to receive anyone that walks through the door of church and help them belong to Jesus? Get the Holy Spirit and belong to this community? You know, when I was a youth pastor and started to reach out to the community, my first experience in pastoring in this church in Holland, Michigan, I found out pretty quickly that people really didn't want to welcome people that were different than them. I found out pretty quickly that these kids that were coming off the streets and coming to church now were not really welcome there. They were considered to be contaminating the rest of the kids, and they were considered to be these tough people that we didn't know if we wanted to have around. I mean, the example of Acts 8 is pretty amazing. Are we ready to welcome people, to help them find this Jesus? 
And Lamotte says a great thing. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So, are we prepared to welcome the Samaritans in our midst? We've got a she ministry here with single moms. We've got a prison ministry here with guys who are incarcerated. We've got alpha groups going on. We're, we're witnessing and serving the community. If these people show up at our door, are we ready to help them belong? Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Again, Lord Jesus, Father God, Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. It is life-shaping, it is powerful, and it is effective. We trust this morning, Holy Spirit, that you have spoken to your people, that you have translated for them these weak and uh, fumbling words of two preachers so that something powerful has happened in the lives of your people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.